Uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 16. And uh, we've been in a series for some time now going through the book of Acts. This is our third installment. And this section of the book of Acts is called We Are Sent. And it's been a, a very, uh, for me anyways, a fruitful um, endeavor to study through the book of Acts and, and to begin to preach on it. So Larry and I are enjoying our time to be able to, to preach this. You know, um, when I was in college at Biola, uh, I worked at a church where I was very close to Disneyland. And um, part of what I had to do working with middle school students, had to do, was I, every Friday night, took middle school kids to Disneyland. And uh, we helped uh, them get into Disneyland. We did a whole bunch of scavenger hunts and stuff. And then after we were done, we'd go back to the church, sit on the roof, and then watch the Friday night fireworks from Disneyland. So it was a fun time. The only thing is when you do that 30 some odd times in a year, over a couple years, uh, Disneyland loses its excitement. Um, it becomes a drag. And I have to be honest with you, uh, I questioned a lot while I was going to Disneyland of why in the world would people do this uh, repeatedly? And I have to do it because it's part of my job, but why do you freely do this? And it wasn't until I became a, a dad that I started to realize, um, well, you do this kind of stuff because you want your kids to have an enjoyable time. And so here I am driving six hours down to Disneyland. And, you know, we had to mortgage our house in order to pay for a couple of tickets to Disneyland. Just kidding. But you understand what I'm talking about. That stuff is so expensive. And I'm wondering to myself, why in the world do we as parents risk and sacrifice so much to take our kids to Disneyland? Why do we compete with all the angry moms with the strollers? And why are we allowing our ankles to get run over with these strollers that are just loose? Why in the world are, are we going to this place that's so impacted with people? You're waiting two hours in line just to go on some ride that lasts a minute and a half. Why are grown people who haven't ran in years now run into the fast pass line in order to to get to the front. I'm just thinking to myself, what has, what has happened in this place? The happiest place on earth turns people crazy. And I started to realize, you know, the, the reason why we pay $47 for a churro at Disneyland <laughs> is, because, is because we know that churros and, you know, riding uh, Peter Pan and the teacups and all this kind of stuff, we know that that stuff brings our kids joy. And so we love the, the experience of watching our kids smile. Why else would we go on It's a Small World? Or <laughs> why do we risk taking the, you know, what, yeah, explaining to my, my five-year-old what just happened to them on Mr. Toad's Wild Adventure was hard. But, and I realized as a parent, the reason why we're so willing to sacrifice and so willing to do so much to ensure that our kids uh, have this great experience is because we really, really want to see them um, just enjoy something. We want to see joy. We want them to be joyful. And we as parents will do a lot in order to achieve that, do we not? Isn't it interesting too that we don't take kids to Disneyland for our own joy primarily, but we do it for theirs. And in fact, joy is a tremendous motivator. Tremendous. We pay so much money for joy to see our kids joyful. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, also was motivated by a tremendous amount of joy. In fact, it says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You see, there's a lot of hard things in life. But when joy, true, lasting joy is your motivation, you are much more willing to endure hardship and to sacrifice if that joy is your motivation. It was true of Jesus, and what we're going to see is it's true of Paul's ministry as well. 
So as we go to Acts chapter 16, verse 16, what we're going to see is this, is that we are indeed sent as Christians. We are sent to the world amidst opposition. There's really intense opposition to the gospel. And we're to proclaim the gospel of God's grace. And here's the, here's the, the point. It's for the joy of those who believe. That's our motivation. We go to the nations. We serve and love those around us for their joy, for God's glory. So let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to teach us. God, help us, I pray. We know that because Jesus would soon be reunited with you, the Father, that that motivation of being in your presence again and being filled with infinite, everlasting joy, pleasures forevermore, that that motivation was one of the major reasons why he endured the cross. So God, I pray for us as Christians. I pray that the joy that is set before us of seeing other people filled with joy, I pray that that would be a motivation for us to go and proclaim the gospel of God's grace. Not in order to check off some box not in order to make ourselves feel good, but our true aim is to bring you glory and to bring those who are lost joy. So God, thank you for being the God who has revealed to us that in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore from Psalm 1611. And we know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and it is he that is our greatest joy. So God, would you help us in our hearts to treasure him for your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. So we are set, sent in the midst of opposition to proclaim the gospel of God's grace for the joy of those who believe. If you remember last week when Larry was preaching uh, from uh, Acts 16, he was mentioning this place called Philippi, which is the place where Paul and Silas went to to begin to do ministry. And uh, Philippi is a really important city. Um, it's in modern-day Greece. But what's interesting about the city from Acts 16, 12, it says that Philippi is a leading city in a Roman colony. What that means is the people who are there as citizens of this city are a mixture of both Greeks and Romans. But many of the Romans who live there are uh, retired Roman soldiers. So they had Roman citizenship. They had Roman freedoms. They were proud of being Roman. Uh, they were just really proud of all that they accomplished and all that they were. And mixed in this city is a bunch of Greeks as well. And one of those Greeks that Paul encountered was a woman named Lydia, if you remember. Paul was going out to a place of prayer. And uh, the reason he did that was because there wasn't a synagogue yet established in the city of Philippi. And so uh, as the custom was, you went out to a body of water out underneath the, the sun or underneath the stars, somewhere where there wasn't a roof over your head. And you would gather together and you would pray and you would read the scriptures. So since there wasn't a synagogue, Paul and his companions, including Silas and probably Luke, they all went out to this riverside to go pray since there wasn't a synagogue. And when they went out there, they encountered uh, a whole group of women, including one woman named Lydia. And we pick this up in verse 14. It says that Lydia was one of the women who heard what Paul was preaching. Her name obviously was Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods and was a worshiper of God. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, it was the Lord who caused her to respond with faith. It was the Lord who caused her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. It was the Lord who caused her salvation. And this Lydia was a rich woman. 
Uh, she probably was a good businesswoman and all this kind of stuff. And it's a pretty interesting thing because as a response to her becoming a Christian, it says this in verse 15, that then she was baptized in her whole household as well. And she urged them, uh, the travel companions of Paul, including Paul, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now picture this for a moment. You have this Greek woman who is rich asking these travel companions and stuff to come over for a, and to share a meal uh, with her and her family. This is uh, just unprecedented in, today's, in this day's culture that this woman would have these men into her home. Not only that, but these Greeks and these Jews would come together. And remember, we've talked about this uh, repeatedly through the book of Acts. God's doing something new here. And Larry also preached that God is sovereign. One of the things that we learned about Acts 16 is God is sovereign over three things. He's sovereign over your circumstances, which means no matter what you experience in life, there's no point at which God is not fully in control. God is sovereign, which means he's Lord, he's ruler, he's in charge. Not only of your circumstances, but also your relationships. Remember Larry pointed out to us the fact that Paul and Barnabas were traveling companions, but then they had a dispute and they separated. Paul took Silas with him. Eventually they met a man named Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy either co-wrote or, or were recipients of many of Paul's le letters and correspondence in the New Testament. It's amazing what God accomplished through that little dispute. And so God is sovereign over our relationships, which means there is no relationship any of us have that is not um, taken into consideration by God and ordained by God to be something uh, that is under his uh, purview, some, something under his control. He's doing it on purpose. Your neighbors, your coworkers, the family that you have, I know you didn't choose them, but they're your family. It's all under God's sovereignty. He's ruler and he is directing all of these things. And not only our circumstances and relationships, but our plans. Remember, Paul wanted to go north into northern Turkey. He wanted to go to the Black Sea and share the gospel. But the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon uh, Paul when he was making his plans and says, no, you're not going that way. He sees a vision and he heads west instead. He goes to a place called Macedonia, and Macedonia is modern-day Greece and Bulgaria. And so he heads in that direction instead. And when he arrives in Philippi, which is one of the leading cities in Macedonia, he encounters this woman, Lydia, and then it hits Paul. Ah, that's why. That's why the circumstances were the way they were. That's why the relationships are the way they are. And that's why the plans that I had were trumped by the plans that you have, God, because you're sovereign and I'm not. You're in charge. And then we pick it up in verse 16, where all of these things are sovereignly ordained by God. God is in control. As we were going to the place of prayer, so here's Paul going out to the same place of prayer where they encountered Lydia and all the women gathered there. They were going out to this place of prayer. They were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So they encounter this, this slave girl who's in double bondage. She's in bondage because she is a slave. She's owned by other human beings. And she is owned and exploited in order to make rich her owners. They don't care about her well-being at all. They're just using her in order to be comfortable, to be happy, and to be wealthy. And this slave girl is also in spiritual bondage. It says that she had a spirit of divination. She's in bondage spiritually speaking. So she's spiritually and physically a slave. And she encounters Paul in verse 20. And when they had brought them, or excuse me, in verse 17, she followed Paul and us. And here's what she was crying out. 
that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, and we'll just stop there. There's something about Paul being annoyed with this, with this girl. And as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking, why in the world would Paul be annoyed? Does he just have a short fuse? Like, what's wrong with this guy? I know he's, uh, uh, history and tradition has taught us that Paul is a short, kind of stocky guy. So we know the kind of stereotypes with that kind of demeanor, like people are angry or all that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's that. But there's something going on here where Paul is just completely annoyed and irritated with this girl. And I think it has to do with what she said. Now, now go back and, and let's look at what she said. She said this about Paul and Silas and his traveling companions. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, in my mind, I look at that and I go, what's wrong with that? I don't see anything wrong with that. In fact, those things are true. Like, let's look at it. These men are servants of, of the Most High God. Is that true about Paul and his companions? Yes. Okay. Well, okay. Who proclaim to you the way of salvation? What's wrong with that? Nothing. It's true. So why in the world is Paul so annoyed? He's annoyed because she's saying these things, but they are too generic to be of any help. Here's what I mean. When, when you have the phrase, they are servants, that phrase in Greek culture and Roman culture simply means this. You worship a particular God. You're just a worshiper. And so any Jew, any Greek, any Roman, any Christian could affirm that statement. Yes, I, I worship. And then the other one is they, they are servants of the most high God. Now we have to understand the most high God is a generic designation that refers to Apollos or refers to Zeus. But it also can uh, apply to the Jewish God, Yahweh. And it can apply to Jesus. And so what you have here is a Roman, a Greek, a Jew, or a Christian could say, yeah, okay, most high God. Yeah, I know who that is. And then the other one that you can, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Every form of religion has some way of salvation. So in a generic sense, every Roman, every Greek, every Jew, and every Christian could look at that statement and say, yes, okay, I subscribe to that. But it's generic. It's too generic to be helpful. And so I think Paul is annoyed with her because she's saying something that is true, but she's saying something so generically true that it can be easily misleading. Because they said, she said, they are servants of the most high God and here's the way of salvation. And a Greek person could go, oh, they're servants of Zeus. Okay, cool. Paul's going, no, 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 you got that wrong. You see, in our culture, we have a lot of that. We have a lot of vague truths that go out there that claim to be Christian. So I Googled this. I Googled Christian inspirational memes. You guys know what memes are, right? Little, little photos with little inspirational words on them. So, so here's a couple that I saw. Christian inspirational memes. Here's one. Don't allow negative thoughts to control you. Hooray. <laughs> why, why did that come up as Christian? There, there's nothing Christian about that. No matter what religion you are and no matter what you believe about anything, you can agree with that. It's too generic to be helpful. 
And, and here's another one uh, from Tim Fargo. He says this, until you cross the bridge of your insecurities, you can't begin to explore your possibilities. <laughs> Again, I look at that and I'm thinking, why in the world would anyone consider that Christian? That's, there's nothing Christian about that. It's just, huh. What bridge is he referring to? <laughs> like, can I Google Maps that bridge? Like, I'm, I'm going to get across this insecurity bridge. It's, it's silly. How about this one? This is more controversial, and stay with me on this one. Here's one that we hear a lot in Christian circles and just in circles in general. God loves you. And that's true, right? Gloriously true. It's just also very generic and therefore virtually meaningless unless you explain it and really potentially misleading. Let me give you an example. Here's, here's three ways that God loves you is being used in our culture today. Number one, God loves you means you're perfect the way you are and there's nothing about you that needs to change. Okay, what do we do with the words of Jesus where he says, God loves you, now repent or else you're going to perish. Because repentance is life change, is it not? So how, how, what do we do with that? God loves you, you don't need to change, you're good. Except for Jesus says God loves you, you need to change. Because you're not good. Do you see misleading? Another one, God loves you, which, which means that God won't allow anything bad to happen to you. Because he loves you. Man, God must hate Jesus then. Some bad stuff happened to him. Or how about this third one? Some, some may take God loves you to mean this, that God will give you whatever you want. Because God loves you, he's going to give you what you want. <laughs> you know what we call that in today's culture? Bad parenting. <laughs> Do you guys understand that? One of the best ways to love my kids is to not give them everything they want. So if you notice this, God loves you. Amen, God loves me. What God are you talking about, though? What kind of love are you referring to? And what do you mean by me? Do you see? We need to define some stuff. So here's a, a distinctly Christian, biblical understanding of this phrase, God loves you. Here we go. An understanding that God loves you means that for the sake of God's glory, he has loved unworthy sinners so much that he has sent his only son to die for them and to rise from the dead for them in order to accomplish for them everything that is necessary for them to escape or be saved by God's just wrath. God loves you so much that he now calls you to place your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, to repent from your sins so that you can be rescued from the wrath of God. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish and you will uh, perish under the wrath of God. But God loves you and has offered you a way to be saved. So repent and believe the gospel and you will have life everlasting. You know why that's distinctly Christian? Because no Muslim, no Mormon, no Jehovah's Witness, and no liberal Christian can agree with that. Because no, no Muslim would ever say that Jesus is God and he died for you. No Mormon would ever say that you, you just have to believe in order to be saved. It's, you have to believe and do a bunch of stuff. No Jehovah's Witness would ever agree that Jesus is God, fully God, the second person in the Trinity. And no liberal Christian, I use this in quotes on purpose, 
would ever say that there's anything such, such as sin or the fact that you are a sinner or there, there's no such thing as God's wrath. And you notice by that, God loves you. It's distinctly Christian. And so this woman, this slave girl is just saying such generic nonsense that it doesn't articulate or really explain anything. And day after day, she is potentially misleading the people who are hearing her talk. And so Paul gets annoyed and here's what he does. He turns and says to the spirit that is inside of her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Do you see what he did? I made it crystal clear what I'm here to do. I'm proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so in the name of Jesus, come out of her. Look, nobody's sitting there going, oh, I wonder if these guys are servants of Zeus. <laughs> nobody's thinking that. They have concluded the, these men, they serve Jesus. No more ambiguity. No more being generic. Very precise. Precision. This ain't going to go good for these guys, though. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. We are going to encounter in Paul's story three oppositions to the gospel. Here's one of them. When the gospel confronts something that we dearly love, we either submit and surrender to the gospel or we change the gospel. And one of the ways that in our culture that the gospel is being opposed is through in the realm of economics. What I mean is we will endure and tolerate and listen to the gospel being preached so long as it doesn't affect us financially. And what's interesting about that is in 1 Timothy 6, it talks about this fact that we, we should not we should not be greedy. We should not have a desire to be rich. And so the gospel is confronting that idolatry of wealth and the security of money. And yet when people hear that and they're like, well, dang, that stinks because I really want to be rich. And you realize that you're really a greedy person. So when you hear the gospel that says repent of your greediness or perish, you go, well, Here's what we could do. What if, what if we change the gospel from repent of your greediness or else you'll perish? And we'll actually say the gospel is the means by which you become rich. So here's the good news. If you trust hard enough and you pray hard enough and you are good enough, God will bless you with wealth. Now, if wealth is your idol, that sounds like really, really good news. And that's what's happening here. These guys are idolaters. They worship money. And now they're really angry because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has now brought their income. Uh, it actually dried it up. It's gone. That's an opposition to the gospel when we experience financial loss. There's another one. There's a racial and there's a cultural opposition. Look at this in verse 20. When they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And you see what's happening here. They're, they're building this racial division. These knuckleheads are Jews. We, the good people, are Romans. You see what's happening. 
And so one of the oppositions to the gospel is racial opposition and also cultural opposition. Let me give you an example. I've had people ask me from time to time, where are you from? And I ask, why do you ask? And they say, you kind of have like this accent. I don't have an accent. And then they, they tell me, well, it sounds as if you, you know, and they don't know how to say it because they're afraid of being racist or whatever. They're like, it sounds like, like, like you've been around non-white people a lot. And so I have to tell them, I was like, yeah, actually, I grew up in a house where my parents told me that the one thing that you are not allowed to do is to treat people poorly because of how they look and because of their income and all this kind of stuff. So one of my dad's best friends, we call him Pineapple, and uh, he's a Hawaiian dude and Tahitian. And so that's what I grew up with, man. Like, just, yeah. And so my aunt, uh, one of my mom's best friends is Turkish, and uh, one of my mom's other best friends is married to a black man. And so our barbecues in my backyard were very good. Because we had Tahitian food, we had barbecue, we had all kinds of stuff. And so people ask me, Phil, where are you from? I said, I'm from Fairfield. <laughs> and when I became a Christian, one of my best friends, who's a black dude, he came up to me. He's like, man, I heard you sold out. I said, I sold out? What do you mean by that? So you sold out, man. I heard you became a Christian. I was like, yeah, I did. He goes, man, that's white man's religion. I thought you were better than that. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, what? And so he told me this. He goes, look, man, we, we all kind of understand you're a black dude in a white man's body. We get that, but something happened. And it was just one of the weirdest experiences. So I asked him this question straight up. I was like, hey, man, would, would you ever let me tell you about the gospel? And he's like, nah. Nah, it's for white folk. Do we see in our culture that there are people who will not listen to the gospel because they associate the gospel with being American and white? But the gospel is not American and white. The gospel is transnational, transcultural, which means it's for everybody. That's one of the, you, somebody came up to me like, Phil, every time you preach, you always talk about the new creation. You always talk about every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And I go, yep. Because that is the goal of where we're headed as the people of God. We're going to the kingdom. And the kingdom is comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And it's a message for everybody. But we're going to face opposition to the gospel because some people will put forth their racial prejudice and their cultural um, priority, and they won't give a hearing to the gospel. But we need to speak anyway. Especially when we speak the true gospel. All are welcome. Then there's physical opposition. Look at this. The crowd joined in attacking them. They're like, all right, some Jews, let's get them. And so they, they come, they tear their garments off, and they give orders to beat them with rods. And it's, it's interesting, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul actually mentions the fact that he got beat with rods three times. Here's one of them. And, and then here we go. And, and when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, maximum security, and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they beat these guys with rods until they had open wounds and they were gushing with blood. And then they put their ankles in some stocks and put them in the inner part of the, of the jail, which is like maximum security prison. Look, one of the obstacles of the gospel is going to be physical harm. Now, that may not happen in America because we've got rules against that kind of stuff. But let's not be foolish. At some point, something's going to happen. And we got to be ready. In fact, when Paul later wrote to the Philippian church, 
a decade or so later, this is what he wrote to the Philippian church about persecution and suffering. He says this in verse, chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had. He's jogging their memory. Remember that? When I got beat with rods, you remember what kind of conflict I was in. And now here that I still have. Paul's saying, look, man, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be tough. Remember what Jesus said? If you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. The cross isn't merely jewelry. It's a form of execution. If you're going to follow Jesus, he bids you come and die. It's going to be hard. So Paul's plan was to go to a place of prayer. Hey, we're just going to go to a place of prayer. God's plan was, I'm going to put you in prison. But God is sovereign over our plans. So why did God sovereignly put Paul in prison? Oh, this is getting good. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I have to stop there and just go, man, what, is, what, what are these guys drinking? How in the world can you get beat where you got open wounds and blood just coming out everywhere? You're in shackles now. You've been opposed in various ways. And you're still sitting there praising and singing songs and hymns to God. You know what won't do that for you? Inspirational Christian memes. Because when you're locked up in a jail cell, you don't have access to Twitter and you don't have access to Instagram and you can't be inspired by this pop cultural nonsense. So you got to have it in your heart or you ain't got it. And so what is it that they needed? You know what they needed? They needed to trust the promises of God because God's promises are true and secure because he is a God who does not lie. So whatever God promises with his mouth, take it to the bank. It's going to come true. He's going to preserve it by the infinite power that he possesses. And since he is infinitely powerful, there is no power greater than God. Therefore, God's promises are true. Now, one of the promises of God is you will suffer. And you're like, oh, can that one not be true? But we have to understand God allows this kind of suffering and this kind of persecution because there are benefits to it. What in the world is that? Look at, look at how Paul writes this in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in our salvation, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. One of the unique ways in which you can experience the true, deep, abiding love of God is in the midst of your suffering. Because that's the point at which God says, this is who I am. Trust me. Not only that, but we become more resilient because of our suffering. It produces endurance in us. And our endurance... Uh, will produce a character. We won't be easily dismayed and we won't quit so easily. And when we don't quit and we're not dismayed and we're, we're actually enduring, then we will have hope. Now, brothers and sisters, if any Christian tells you that they're offering hope and they don't include some sort of suffering, what in the world are they talking about? If you read Romans 8, God always, uh, Paul always puts hope and suffering very close to one another because suffering is tangible. 
You and, all, you and I, in some way, shape, or form, recently have suffered in some way. Or we know someone who has. And as 1 Thessalonians says, we as Christians are not those who, who grieve our suffering as though we have no hope. We have hope. And it ain't a wish. It's, it's hope. It's guaranteed. What is the hope? The hope is that one day we will see God's glory. We will see what God is up to. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. One of the benefits, one of the other benefits of suffering is to behold and experience the glory of God. What in the world is the glory of God? The glory of God is the point at which God reveals his infinite worth by going public with how beautiful and how valuable he is. So how much is God worth to you? We in our suffering will see the immense worthiness and the immense value of God. And that is why in the midst of our suffering, we will behold glory. This is what Romans 8 says, verse 18. Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do we not understand? Like, look, these bodies may perish, but we're getting a new one. Look, this world is decaying. It's, it's distorted. All kinds of nonsense is happening. People are dying in earthquakes in Mexico, all kinds of crazy stuff. But guess what? There's coming a new heavens and a new earth. No more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. And I know people, when they hear me talk about this, they're always like, yeah, but that's like, you know, that's like fanciful type stuff. And I'm like, you believe it too. If you didn't believe it, you would never ask the question, why is this bad thing happening to me? Because you intuitively know in your heart and mind that there's something better out there. And that something better, that faint whisper, that, that hidden echo of a world that's better than the world we experience. Let me tell you, God has placed that in your mind and heart as evidence that there is such thing as heaven. We all yearn for heaven. We all yearn for glory. And through suffering, we get to behold it in a way we can't experience it in any other way. There's benefit. Suffering changes our priorities because it causes us to ask ourselves hard questions that we may ne never have asked ourselves in any other circumstance. But you know what's interesting? We often quote uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do we not remember the context of that where Paul says, I know how to be hungry and happy. I know how to be homeless and filled with joy. I know how to be broke and yet having all things. Or in other words, I know how to have joy in the midst of my suffering. And you know how to do that? That you make Jesus Christ your treasure. Because when all things are stripped from you and you're left with nothing but Jesus, is that enough? And if that's enough, then you can endure anything. Paul experienced suffering. Silas experienced suffering. There are practical benefits to it. Even the author of Hebrews says this, that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So brothers and sisters, let's not waste our suffering. But let us run 
to the glorious God who is sovereign and ruler. Then an earthquake happens, verse 26. I mean, we could stop right there, right? Verse 26, though. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Wow. If you and I were locked up in jail and an earthquake happened and now I'm free, and the doors just sprung open, I might be tempted to be gone. (laughs) But do you notice Paul and Silas, what they do? They don't leave. They stay. Their integrity is on display here. They're, They're saying, you know what, because of Christ, because of the gospel, I don't need to run away. I'll stay here and face whatever comes. And so when the jailer wakes up, because he's like laying in his bed, having a you know, good night's sleep, and boom, he gets rumbled, falls out of his bed, runs over to the jail and sees the doors are wide open and, and all the moorings of the, of the you know, shackles and stuff are all let loose. And, and he's thinking, if I was them, I'd be gone. So he's assuming everyone's gone. So he pulls out a sword ready to commit suicide because the alternative is if you don't do your duty, you get crucified. So he's thinking to himself, mm, kill myself with a sword or be crucified. I'm going the sword route. And he's about to kill himself when Paul yells out, do not harm yourself. We're all here. You know what's interesting about this? If I was in that situation and I was, I was Paul, I would have left. And the jailer assumed they would have left. But do you notice how countercultural the gospel makes us behave? Do you understand what I'm saying with that? What the world would expect us to do, we do the opposite. So when people revile us and hate us, we don't respond with reviling and hate. We respond with love, countercultural. And so look what this guy does. He sees what's happening. He goes, verse 30, he brought them out and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Well, in other words, you and your whole house, if you will do what I'm prescribing for you, which is believe in the Lord Jesus, you all be saved. I think this is important because if you notice, the jailer didn't get converted by Paul and Silas's good works or integrity. Do you notice that? He asked, how, how do I get saved? You know, in our culture today, especially with Christians, we always talk about we communicate with the gospel through our lives, and there's some truth to that. But the way in which we live our lives and the integrity with which we live our lives and the obedience that we have in our lives, those aren't sufficient to save other people. And if they're not sufficient to save other people, they're not sufficient to save ourselves. Likewise, our obedience doesn't save us. So why do we think our obedience is somehow going to save our neighbor? It's not. We have to remember that nobody gets saved via charades. The gospel is something that has to be communicated. Look, look at what happens the next, uh, what happens immediately after. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all to who were in his house. So you see what happens? He asked the question, how can I be saved? And they respond by believing in the Lord Jesus. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your whole house. And I think this is really important because we hear a lot of this stuff like preach the gospel, 
you know, and then when necessary, use words. You've heard that phrase? We have to, we have to come to the understanding that in order for somebody to be saved, it is 100% necessary for the gospel to be spoken. So if we simply say, I'll preach the gospel and whenever it's convenient, I'll use words. Guess what? It'll never be convenient for you to use words, which means you'll never actually share the gospel. That's why Paul had to speak to them the words of the Lord. And, and look how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10. He says, speaking of unbelievers, how then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If we have any hope of saving our family or neighbors or anyone, the gospel we know must be spoken. It can't simply be just lived out. Like I said, nobody gets saved via charades. How hard is charades in the first place? And if you think you're going to help people understand the profound eternal mysteries of the gospel through the way that you behave, it's not going to happen. It needs to be spoken. Now, what is the gospel that needs to be spoken? It's the gospel of God's grace. Remember this in Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's no good. God's wrath is upon me by my nature. Yep. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with, the, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, the new creation, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you get what Paul's trying to get here? Look, you guys, you are in a terrible situation, but God in his infinite love and wisdom and mercy and grace has offered you rescue and salvation through faith in his son, Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. And so what we see, what we see as the result of this is staggering. And it's what we should see as a result of when we contemplate the gospel. Look, look what happens. The jailer took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. At this time, whenever you were imprisoned, it was your family's responsibility to wash you and to feed you. And if your family did not come to wash and feed you, you did not get fed nor washed. So here is this Roman jailer who is not a Jew, not related to Paul and Silas at all, who hears the gospel. And as he's washing the wounds of Paul, he probably looks at the bucket of water and kind of like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Water, 
Me? Baptize? So he and his household get baptized. Remember, he and his household heard the word of the gospel. And then they get baptized. But do you see how he washes their wounds and then verse 34 sets food before them? What do you think Luke is trying to get across right here? If it's only families that do that to one another, then this is a depiction of what the family of God looks like. That it transcends racial divisions. It transcends cultural divisions. And what's happening here is you have people from, from different backgrounds who are treating one another as family. That is what the church is supposed to be like. The church is a family, brothers and sisters, not because of race, not because of gender, not because of socioeconomics. We are a family, brothers and sisters, because of faith. So look at the response. And he, being the jailer, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Do you notice that hospitality and joy are the natural outflowing of our joy in our salvation? Do you guys see that? The most natural thing for us as Christians to do in light of all that God has done for us is to love and serve our neighbor and our friends through hospitality meeting their needs, even though they're strangers. And the most natural thing is also to be filled and overflowing with joy. And then we read Philippians 1, where Paul writes to this Philippian church, and he's struggling with, he's just struggling in his mind. He's like, you know what? I, I kind of want to, he's in prison. He's like, I want to die so I can be with Jesus. But I also want to live so I can be of service and helpful to people. But I don't know what, the, I don't know. I don't know if I want to die or live. I, I just don't know. So he writes this in Philippians 1, 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I think I'm going to live for, for you. And then he says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for what? For your progress and for your joy. You see Paul's motivation here. I'm motivated to do ministry with people who probably are going to hate me. I'm going to do this knowing that I'm going to experience fierce opposition. But my motivation in the face of opposition, in the face of potential suffering, my motivation is this that some people who believe will be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And their joy is worth my sacrifice. Isn't that why we take kids to Disneyland? Their joy, our sacrifice. <laughs> but in a much grander scale, do you see Paul's motivation? I want them to be joyful. Parents, we, we need to get this through our, our minds of grandparents too. We need to get this through. This has been a challenge on me. This is what God just, mm. I'm being challenged so hard with this. Our children's greatest joy is not going to be in them being the best student or best athlete or best musician. That's not where they're going to find lasting in joy. Their greatest joy is going to be found in a person named Jesus Christ. What that means, though, is our children won't believe that Jesus Christ is their greatest joy if they find it hard 
to experience that in other people. And if they come to the realization that perhaps their own parents and grandparents don't see Jesus as their greatest joy. Do you feel that? Because I was thinking about that and I'm feeling that. If my kids don't see that my greatest joy is Jesus, I have no shot of ever thinking that their greatest joy will be Jesus either. So I need God to do a work in my own life that I do not have the capacity nor the resources to do. I cannot make Jesus the joy that he ought to be apart from God's work of the Holy Spirit within me. I'm ever dependent on him and so are you. When all things are laid bare and we have nothing but Jesus, is that enough? Our children need to see that it is. John Piper says, the measure of your treasure is your pleasure in that treasure. Let me say it again. To know how much you treasure something, to measure how much you treasure something, you only have to look at how much pleasure you receive from that treasure. And if Jesus is not the supreme treasure, evidenced by your extreme pleasure, then he is not your treasure. And that has been hard. But the other thing I see in this is I see a beautiful depiction of the, of the church. The church in Philippi had Paul and Silas, Jewish men, but it also had Lydia, a Greek woman. It had a slave girl, presumably, who was poor and enslaved, but it also had free people, the Romans. And what I see in the church in Philippi is you have male and female, you have slave and free, you have Jew and Gentile, you have rich and poor, and all of them are rejoicing in the salvation that God has brought them through Jesus Christ. Do you see? And the motivation for Paul is that the people would rejoice. No wonder why Psalm 67, this is what I want my prayer to be. Psalm 67 verses 3 through 4 about the people who do not yet know Jesus. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Is that your motivation that you want to see infinite amount of people totally joyful, overflowing with gladness because they have come to know their Savior, their Maker, and His name is Jesus. That should be our motivation. And therefore, the most natural response for us as Christians is to praise God for so great a salvation. So God, would you work this in our own hearts and our own minds? Lord, I have to possess this, I have to possess this passion for you that I cannot will on my own in my own strength or with my own resources. You have to work this in us as a church. God, would you reveal yourself to us in powerful ways through the Spirit so that we would see Jesus as he really is, which is our greatest treasure. And so, God, you have to do this. We're, we're just trusting you for this. We have to. Show yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us. The greatness of who you are the infinite worth of who you are. And that is what it means to glorify you. And God, you are so worthy of praise. 
And that's why it's most natural and most fitting for us to end this service by praising you. So thank you in Jesus' name, amen.